We'll start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Martyrs of England and Wales, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In the latest newsletter that John sent to us, he announced that the meeting tonight would be concerned with Catholic education, subtitled Doubt or Dogma. And the three of us sitting here all have a plank in education, and we have all worked for the Catholic schools, both in our professional lives and in our private lives for many years. So John thought it might be a good idea if we each spoke on something to do with education, and then we could talk about it afterwards. We aren't the only ones that are concerned about the state of Catholic education, and it gives people an opportunity to express their own concerns and perhaps perhaps make suggestions for improving what is a disastrous if not a catastrophic situation. Now I'm down to start off apparently. I wanted to tell you about the Vatican document, the Catholic school, partly because I didn't want to get on to catechetics with Michael here because he's, um, he's the expert there. The whole thing was brought to light, in fact, some years ago by his dossier on catechetics, which uh, led to the closure of the infamous Corpus Christi College and a great piece of work that was. But although the college closed, the spirit of the college lives on. We in Profide did our bit. We produced some pamphlets which alerted people to the situation. We had this one, The Truth Betrayed, and then we had this one which Michael was very much concerned with, which listed the doctrines. No doubt he'll mention that later, so I won't go into it. But we also had one which was called the Catholic School, which was concerned with broader issues to do with the Catholic School and trying to bring home the fact that although catechetics was an area of great concern, there were many other areas which prevented the Catholic School from doing its task as um, it was intended. We haven't got any of those left, they all went. Well, the Vatican followed suit, if I may put it that way. And the, um, we had, first of all, their dossier, which was this um, wonderful document, the Catechetical Directory, which came out in 1971 from 
the Congregation for the Clergy, which at the time was under the direction of Cardinal Wright, who was a great friend of um, Profide and uh, Catholics United for the Faith. Then we had the Synod of Bishops, at which all these problems were certainly aired and stated, and rather than have um, a report from the Synod, the word Synod of Bishops in 1977, Pope John Paul sat on it and produced this in 1979, Catechesi Tridenda, another excellent um, contribution to the debate. Then we had the Congregation for Catholic Education, and they produced this, well, this is the CTS version of the Catholic School. We didn't um, complain about their use of the title because um, we thought, well, they have every right to use it as well. But this document hasn't really received the attention that it deserves. And it does give the idea of how a Catholic school should contribute to society generally and to the church in particular. So I thought I'd spend my time this evening drawing your attention to this, possibly whetting your appetites, and hopefully hoping that you will perhaps have a look at it yourselves one day and see how marvellously well Rome does lead us. And unfortunately, you also get the yardstick of how badly things are, in fact, happening here. The document starts with the idea of the school itself, taking the mission of the church as evangelization and salvation of all mankind. It tells us that the Catholic school is one of the means whereby the church tries to perform its mammoth task. Of course, the first and foremost means are those bequeathed to the church by its founder, Jesus. But there are other means which the church, in various times and places, have been able to foster. And the Catholic school is, according to the document, one of the important means of assisting the church to fulfill its mission of evangelization. So it goes on to discuss what we mean by a school, not necessarily a Catholic school. And taking the definitions from education experts and journals, it comes with the definition that a school is a centre in which a specific concept of the world, of man and of history is developed and conveyed. It is a place of integral formation by means of a systematic and critical assimilation of culture. Therefore, a school is a privileged place in which, through a living encounter with cultural inheritance, integral formation occurs. It helps the pupils to consider absolute values in a life context, 
to spell out the meaning of his experiences and their truths. But any school, centre of learning, has either implicitly or explicitly a determination or a reference to a scale of values, an adherence to a scale of values. Some of our comprehensive schools, for instance, have an adherence to a a scale of values that might be portrayed by the Guardian, for instance. And this is, in turn, centred on their pupils. But whatever the scale of values which the school bases itself, it's essential that all those people involved in the school, those members of the community which is the school, must share those values to a greater or lesser degree. Otherwise, they would be drawing their pupils in more than one direction. The school, then, is not only a place where one is given a choice of intellectual values, but a place where one has presented an array of values which are actively lived. So these fundamental truths taken into the Catholic school, we are to expect that for a school to be truly Catholic, the members of its community should share the faith that we are trying to lead our pupils to. Because the Catholic school has as its aim, according to this, and I think you will agree, the complete Catholic formation of all its pupils. Its reference, the Catholic school's reference, is to a Christian concept of life centred in Jesus Christ and all its members should share the Christian ideal, the Christian vision. I might sort of interpolate there that when we talk about the members of a school, or I think when the document talks about the members, it talks about not merely the teachers, the teaching staff, it talks also about the pupils, and it talks about the parents of the pupils because they are all members of what the document calls the community, which is the school. A school which is composed merely of children and teachers is not, in a sense, a proper school. School must be a community made up of pupils and their parents and teachers, and in the case of the Catholic school, made up of the priests of the parish and under the direction of the bishop. And in fact, it is the responsibility of the bishop to see that those values and those circumstances which are expected from the document are in fact present in the school. The subjects that are taught in a school, history, geography, English, science, whatever, languages, they must be taught in accordance with their own particular methods. They mustn't be looked upon as adjuncts of the faith. They must be looked upon uh, in, the, in their own excellence, looked upon as 
a search for truth. They must, the study of these subjects must lead to the discovery of truth and an awareness of truth. And eventually the discovery and awareness of truth with a small t leads to the discovery and awareness of truth itself. Capital T. And the fundamental aim of teaching is the assimilation of objective values and when this is undertaken for an apostolic purpose it doesn't stop at an integration of faith and culture but leads the pupils on to a personal integration of faith and life, their own life. The religious education tuition or lessons must of course be given pride of place RE must be imparted explicitly and in a systematic manner but there we go on a little to catechetics so we, we won't go on with that except to say that the aim of the religious education in a school is not merely intellectual assent but commitment. Not merely it's not enough just to know and understand the truth of a proposition, but to live your life by that truth. And that is the aim of the Catholic school. Having um, made a kind of division there between the teaching of religious education itself as a subject and the teaching of the other subjects on the curriculum, I mustn't give you the idea that the document separates the commitment aim in any part of the school. This is always present in all areas of the curriculum. But not in the sense of indoctrination, but more in the sense of a life experience and an investigation of life experience and subject experience which again leads to the truth awareness and discovery of the truth of the subject which in itself must of course be allied to the truth of religion because all the time pupils must be taught to discern in all subjects in the voice of the universe the creator whom it reveals the universe itself demonstrates the creator. Through the universe, we can comprehend something of the creator. And this is the background of all lessons in all the subjects. The ideas that are put forward in so many schools about a mechanistic type of evolution, for instance, do not are not in accord with that particular demand. In the schools in which I teach, <coughs> 7 to 11, it's almost impossible to procure a history textbook for the children to use because in each and every one of them portrays this idea that we human beings are descended from some brut brutal kind of ape 
which not many people, even the evolutionists, believe nowadays, that I suppose, since they haven't brought the books up to date, they still expect us to buy them. Unfortunately, it's a great strain on a teacher to have to teach all these things, history, geography, and so on, without, without a proper backup of textbooks. You don't teach through the textbook, but it's very difficult to teach without the backup of a textbook. And for the Catholic school, it's not easy to find suitable textbooks today. <coughs> not easy to find them for religious instruction, let alone the rest. I'm coming to the end of my time. There are lots, there's lots more there to be um, studied, and I hope you will. There, are, there is some very interesting comments on the necessity for cooperation with the parents. As the Vatican Council said, that we should have parents' associations. This is reiterated here. It's necessary for Catholic schools to keep up to date in their pedagogy, not just with the um, latest ideas, but to evaluate them and incorporate them if they are satisfied of their worth. Not only the developments in secular education, but it, Catholic schools and Catholic teachers have a duty to keep abreast of the pronouncements of the magisterium if they are to do their work properly. They must be self-critical. They must preserve what I was talking about earlier, the community aspect of the school. The Catholic school must respect the professional organisations. This particular part came in very useful to me quite recently when we've had this disruption in the schools and it was necessary at one stage for me to instruct my teachers with the help of this document upon the difference between their professional responsibilities and their vocational responsibilities. In those sort of times of disruption these can be mixed up. The direction of the bishop, the necessity Necessity to observe the principle of subsidiarity also is given some space. And also, though I haven't stressed it so much, there is, for a teacher, a great uplift in reading this to know the worth that the Vatican places upon the job of a teacher, which is uh, always to be accepted. I remember the story of the two lady teachers who were involved in an explosion and suddenly translated to the next world. And one of them said to the other, isn't this paradise a peaceful place compared with class three? <laughs> and the other one said, but my dear, this is not paradise. We're somewhere else. <laughs> gives you an idea of what it's like to take class three on a Friday afternoon <laughs> there's also detailed <coughs> details of the objections that we come against Catholic schools 
we come against objections because in Northern Ireland, if all the schools were non-denominational, then everything would be peaceful and light. That would solve everything. We have lots of, um, lots of sisters and congregations have given up their teaching because they feel that they'd be far better, far better uh, absorbed in social work. <laughs> and this document gives us the understanding of the value of the vocation of teacher. And it tells us, finally, that the Catholic school is an irreplaceable source of service, not only to its pupils and its other members, but to society as a whole. I think I'll stop there and we can possibly go on more in the discussions as my time is up. I'll introduce David Foster next. I warned him he was going to be second. And he's, um, <coughs> for some years, has been head of department not, not a, in um, department, Catholic really. Secondary School. But he's also been running a very interesting experiment, or perhaps I shouldn't call it experiment anymore, because after five years it's proved its worth. And that is a summer school. He tells me he got the idea once in discussing with a communist how they, uh, or how they have their summer schools and how they place so much value upon them. So he thought we'd try a Catholic summer school. And this has now been going, I think we're up to our fifth year, and anybody who would like more information about that, I'm sure David would love to tell you. But for the moment, he's going to talk more upon the philosophical background of a Catholic school, which I suppose I touched upon there, but I hope I didn't queer your pitch. David Foster. Not only do you not queer my pitch, John, but quite frankly I'm going to do more than touch upon it because I don't feel myself to be qualified to talk about the philosophical background to anything. Oh. I'm not a philosopher. Uh, I can't think of a much better description of what I'm going to talk about except perhaps the Catholic worldview as reflected in education, which, of course, John also did certain things to do about. But occasionally got the sinking feeling he or the Vatican between them were pinching some of my best lines. Um, many of you, ladies and gentlemen, will probably have become, rather against your will, connoisseurs of schools, Catholic schools, decidedly un-Catholic schools, and of course non-Catholic schools. And it's a good idea sometimes to remind ourselves that one can envisage realistically such a thing as a good Catholic school and demand it as a right. To put the good Catholic school in perspective, I think it's perhaps worth noting that there are possibly four grades of Catholic school going from worst to best starting with the very worst. There's the school in which actual heresy is peddled deliberately. Often, heaven help us, sad to say, run by a religious order. Um, some of you all know far more about that than I do, and I've no doubt wish you didn't. It makes excellent sense, in my view, to prefer a non-Catholic school to such a school as that. The second kind is the kind which doesn't deliberately peddle heresy at all, but simply religion has a low priority in its scheme of values. Things like academic results or sporting successes 
come much higher in the scheme of values. In my view, you would not probably be well advised to prefer an un-Catholic school to that because not only is half a loaf better than no bread, but so is a 16th or a 32nd or a 64th of a loaf. Any bread is better than no bread unless the bread is poisoned. And the first kind, of course, it is poisoned. Then, far ahead of any of these, there's the school in which the rest of the curriculum is no different from the non-Catholic school down the road. But at least in the RE lessons, the full authentic Catholic faith is taught by Orthodox teachers. I might say in passing, I've, uh, the school where I teach has, in my view, recently developed from school number two to school number three. And I think we're lucky. Probably puts us at one bound among the best in the country. Um, now, I know very well that most of you would gladly settle for school number three if you could get it. And in the present situation, so should I. But it may be a startling thing to say, but I have not yet described one single truly Catholic school. That great and wise man C.S. Lewis once said that it's not the books written against Christianity that convert somebody to atheism or agnosticism. It's the unspoken and perhaps unconscious atheist and agnostic assumptions in all the other books. And similarly, it's the unspoken atheist, atheist and agnostic and secularist assumptions in all the other lessons that weaken Catholic faith. Although undoubtedly, authentic Catholic teaching in the RE lessons can do much against it. Now, the school which I call a truly Catholic school, and I don't know of one incidentally, I frankly admit reality legs behind the ideal, but the ideal is perfectly practicable, is one in which all subjects are taught in the light of the faith, of the Catholic worldview, of the Catholic vision of reality. As John Finnegan put it in his talk, the Christian concept of life, the commitment present in all areas of the curriculum, the voice of the universe in all subjects reveals its creator. Now, you could say, in a way, that the Catholic faith, in one respect the metaphor breaks down, I know, is rather like the sun. It's unlike the sun in, which you, in that you look at the Catholic faith and study it directly far more than you ever do the sun. But it's like the sun in the fact that you see all other things in the light of the Catholic faith. It is a window through which to see reality. If you are a Catholic, you look at everything in a different way from the way you look at everything. It's an insight, and I could almost coin a word and say a round sight and a through sight. Um, I can't help remembering, and I remember, I know one in the audience will be thinking of it, uh, of an Australian who once told me there was a Catholic way of knocking in a nail. <laughs> now, I'm so hopeless at knocking in nails that I have no idea what he meant. But that's the only reason I have no idea what he meant. I see its intrinsic probability. If I knew more that no about knocking in nails, I'd probably see how true it was. All subjects, in fact, from history to literature to physics to biology, can be seen in the light of the Catholic worldview. Now, before I go on to the ways that might work in various subjects, could I give you two images which have come my way, which I think give a very depressing picture of what the reality is underlying Catholic assumptions about education. 
One of them is literally, literally chilling. I was talking some years ago to somebody who knew Canada and told me that I ought to read some French-Canadian literature. I'm afraid, as is my remiss habit, I didn't take the names of the authors he recommended and so I never have got round to reading any. But he said, there are two images which dominate French-Canadian literature. One is the long northern winter, which for so much of the year stultifies life. And the other is the church. And the church is like winter. <coughs> Think of the awful, chilling, depressing implications of that. The second image has been put into my head by the fact that a very popular book to study in A-level courses is James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, I've heard it criticised on grounds of pornography. I've heard it criticised as a direct danger to faith. I would say its biggest danger to faith is probably the fact that it enshrines unconsciously, unconsciously possibly on Joyce's part, what I think is the dominant image bedeviling Irish and therefore all British Catholic education. And that is that Catholic education or the Catholic view of life or Catholicism in general is seen as a small, dark, dusty room. And the world outside, the secularist world outside in our time, the atheistic world outside in its assumptions, is seen as a large light outdoors. And even those who remain loyal to Catholicism too often have the feeling how much greater fun it is out there and how much more intelligent they are and how much more courageous they are. No wonder they lapse. I think I'd lapse if that were the worldview of Catholicism I had. The main need and object, the first priority to my mind of present-day Catholic education is to relentlessly reverse those two images, to demonstrate that the church is like spring and summer. It is itself the condition of all life, all knowledge the thing that revives a dying civilization, although that is not its purpose, not its primary purpose. And the other is that secularism, modern 20th century secularism, is the small, dark, dusty room. Smaller, narrower, stupider, more ignorant, more provincial, more shuttered against the light than our worldview is. As Belloc says, the words are not very fashionable today, we approach them as inferiors. He did not mean that God loved them less, he meant they knew less. They are the pupils, we are the teachers. We have an infinitely wider, lighter view of reality. The most practical means, to my mind, of getting into the Catholic mind and imagination and psyche unconsciously, even, although it can be done consciously as well, that this is the reality of things, this is the right relation between Catholicism and modern secularism, is by access to the past. The educated man is steeped in the past. I would almost say education equals the past. By getting our heads out through the skylight into the air of other periods. It seems to me, to me that to go through the trouble of learning to read, which most of our civilization have, and to read books only of one's own period, well... It's a silly waste of time, obviously. It's rather like learning to drive and buying a car and then never driving outside one's own street. 
Or you could say modern secularism is like the bedridden lady who's confined to her bed, never goes outside her bedroom, is given picture books to read by kind friends, but when she opens these picture books, all she's got is photographs of the wallpaper of the room where she is. That is the condition of modern secularism. And the condition, I'm afraid, of our Catholic education, unless it steeps itself in the past. Now, quite obviously, not all subjects equally do this. History, ideally, should do it. It's the object of history. If history doesn't do that, then it's a waste of time. Get rid of it. Study cricket statistics. It's the object of literature, or one of the objects of literature. Um, why the past? What's so special about the past? After all, in our day, as we know, there is a nostalgia industry, and I think it's a sign of weakness and sickness. I'm not recommending the past on those grounds. Um, first of all, because it corrects and balances the assumptions of the time and place in which you happen to be born. You learn that your time and place are not the only ones. This would be necessary even if the age we were living in were utterly Christian and Catholic. The fact that it isn't gives it greater urgency. Again, it introduces you to the noblest of what has been thought and said, and thus enlarges and ennobles your mind. Um, C.S. Lewis's hideous strength contains a miserable character by the name of Mark Studdock, and it says of him, it must be remembered in Mark Studdock's in Mark Sturrock's defence, that in his education, in his mental framework, not one single rag of noble thought, pagan or Christian, had ever found a secure resting place. No wonder he acted as he did. Um, a third reason why we must study, why we must steep ourselves in the past, not simply study it, think with its mind to some extent as well as our own mind, is that the past contains ten, in this country, let's talk about this country, that's the one we know, contains ten centuries of Catholicism, in which this country was steeped in Catholicism, followed by three centuries of Protestantism, English literature, English life, for the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, was Protestant, steeped in Protestantism. So if you live entirely in the 20th century, which has followed both those, you have a mind which is conditioned by secularist assumptions. And this is true even if you go to Mass every week and think you are a loyal, orthodox, practicing Catholic. You will still have in your mental furniture a lot of unconscious secularist assumptions because they're in the air around you and unquestioned. And the fourth reason for steeping yourself in the past, which I see as the main object of education, is that the past contains Christendom. I think the present contains Christendom as well. I don't think Christendom ever dies. I think it's the one civilization that doesn't. Um, the past, to be exact, contains an experiment, an attempt at a Catholic society, that of the Middle Ages. Now, I'm not one of these ignorant people who idealizes the Middle Ages or glamorizes them. At least I hope I'm not. They were full of squalor, hideousness, great failure, as well as great success. Nevertheless, they're the only attempt so far, and they did have their successes at their healthiest, to incarnate the Catholic view of reality in the whole of society. And the whole of history since then can only be understood, it seems to me, as a civil war reversing that process, trying to undermine that process. We and our successors must reverse it again. Um, I could say here that one of the things that distinguishes Catholicism, although in a way it applies to all true religious views of reality, 
is that it is the incarnational religion. I don't mean just that it believes in the incarnation of our Lord, although that, in fact, permeates everything. The implications of that permeate what I'm talking about. It's the natural instinct of Catholicism always to express itself in the temporal, the concrete, and the particular. To express itself in schools, in architecture, in the arts, in institutions, in society, in government. And society, which does not do this, is not a Catholic society, even if most of its citizens are Catholic. Um, there is a heresy, and like a lot of the worst modern heresies, it's not a spoken heresy. It's not perhaps a conscious one. But there is a heresy very much abroad today, even among people who otherwise are Orthodox Catholics, that in some way what Constantine did in making the Roman Empire Christian and what Charlemagne did in seeking to found a Christian empire were in some way a distortion of true Christianity. I think this is this guy's Manichaeism. It's, it's one of the forms of a hatred of reality. This one hates, con this view hates concrete reality. It thinks that concrete reality is so dirty that the faith mustn't get mixed up with it. Just as they say that marriage without sex ends in sex without marriage, so society, so Christ Christianity without society ends in society without Christianity. Which I think is the way that Protestantism went from the beginning, although possibly not. Uh, by intention. Just saying a bit more about Christendom, which is the basis of all Catholic education, to my mind, Christendom has historically meant Europe and Europe beyond the seas. Uh, the future, I know very well, and you know very well, may hold, for all we know, an African Christendom, sending missionaries to convert us and make us part of Christendom again, may easily. But education is a steeping in what is and has been. It can't it can't go in for prophecy. It will educate, it will steep its students in African Christendom when the African Christendom has happened. Um, another thing about Christendom is it must come before the nation. Christian internationalism must come before the nation. Internationalism, in fact, is always either much better or much worse than, the, than nationalism. If it isn't Christian nationalism, it will be pagan, secularist internationalism, and that is the work of the devil. Could I say here too, which is very, very uh, germane to education, and John Finnegan touched upon it when he mentioned Northern Ireland, there's a fallacy which makes me tear my hair every time I hear anything about Northern Ireland almost, because this fallacy is implied. Again, like so many modern heresies, nobody has the clear-headedness actually to state it, otherwise you can knock it on the head. But it's always applied as an unspoken assumption. The fallacy of neutrality. The idea that you can have a neutral school. You can take away this peculiar religious position, Catholicism. You can take away this peculiar religious position, Protestantism. And what you have left will be a perfect neutral school in which the two can simply learn together. It is, of course, weak thinking, rubbish. Uh, there is no such thing as a neutral anything. There is no such thing as a neutral school, a neutral state or anything. If it is not Catholic, it will be anti-Catholic. It may not be consciously and deliberately anti-Catholic, but it will work in an anti-Catholic direction. As the Australian Catholic poet James Macaulay said, what we omit, we teach, will not be missed. Um, talking about Christendom again, and I may be rambling here, um, let me ask, just ask some questions which I think bring out the nature of Christendom. Forty years ago, this country was at war 
with a number of powers, in fact, major and minor, but I suppose the three main, main enemies were Germans, Italians, and Japanese. Ask yourself, do you think of those all equally as foreigners? Are Germans and Italians the same sort of people, roughly, as Japanese? If you think they are, and many English people do act as though they are, I suspect, or would do if it weren't for the accident of colour, uh, then you are not, obviously, thinking with the mind of Christendom. Do you realise, for instance, these are very, very haphazard, do you realise that Poles, Czechs and Hungarians are not Eastern Europeans, they are Eastern Western Europeans. They are part of Western Christendom, as Frenchmen, Scots, English, Spaniards. Um, what is your bias among foreigners, if you've got one? Do you prefer Spaniards to Swedes? Do you prefer French to Germans? Or the other way around? Talking of Germany, what do you think is Germany's greatest contribution to civilization? Music? Philosophy? Beer? <laughs> or the idea of the Christian Empire? Which I think they understood probably better than anybody else. When you hear the words left and right in politics, do you think they are very, very important? Do you think they mean two eternal realities? Or do you think that looked at from the point of view of Rome, they look like a local derby between Barnsley and Rotherham? Where would your loyalties lie if there existed a major Catholic power in the way that Soviet Russia is a major communist power? Last of these rather random questions, do you think we're persecuted? It's an impertinent question, considering the heroism that there is in Africa or behind the Iron Curtain or in some parts of Latin America. I would argue that we were, because Catholicism is a religion about the whole of life. And if we are not running the show, then we are persecuted, because it is the nature of Catholicism to run the show. And if Catholicism is not incarnating itself in a whole society, then it is stunted. And we are not being allowed to practice our full religion. I know that some religion, in this sense, must always be persecuted, yes. Quite right. Not every religion can run society. You can't have two holes existing together. Can I end up, I've just had a very polite note about time, and looking at my watch I'm not surprised. Um, what should the Catholic school aim at producing? Um... I think it must create, to use a rather unpopular word, a Catholic Christian elite who are citizens of Christendom, breathing the air of, Christism, of Christendom. We want students who are not conditioned by the present age, who are capable of getting their heads above it, looking down at it and measuring it, seeing the good in it and the bad, learning, and this is part of the object of such a school, how the bad came about. Possibly who is promoting it. Such pupils, it seems to me, such students, when they go out of the school, can really work effectively for the restoration of the kingship of Christ and at making themselves the core of a mini-Christendom. I know that pupils are influenced by their peers, but I do, suggest, I do stress peers, that, uh, which means equals. Nobody's influenced, really, by somebody who is obviously more ignorant and naive than he is, a kind of country cousin. And the secularists properly understood who surround us in the modern world are our country cousins. 
if, we, if our young Catholic people are properly educated, not only educated in the dogmas of the faith, in apologetics, how to defend them, that is absolutely essential, and boy, that would be a huge advance on what is existing at the present time, but also steeped in Christendom and therefore capable of seeing what is around them in perspective. Then I do believe they become, as G.K. Chesterton put it, living and walking and breathing human beings in a city of paralytics. One last thing, what can be done and is being done to uh, create such an elite? Um, very briefly, I, was, I have been associated with two things. There's the course about which John said such kind words. We have only a week, so we don't do much in a week. We do something, I believe. And a lot of people think we do something. Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The programme continues on the second side. Uh, there was a school project I was engaged in a year or two ago which founded, for a variety of reasons, of which finance was one, the object of which was to found a Catholic school in the south of England or anywhere else uh, which would teach the authentic Catholic faith and have teachers who, in all their subjects, would incarnate the Catholic worldview. Uh, if I had to say the most urgent project to which a millionaire could give his money, I would say that was it. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you very much, David. Time is pressing on. But now we come to Michael, who is, um, as I've already said, the, the foremost expert on catechetics. And um, that isn't his only interest, of course. He has many others. He's very um, well known for his books on the mass, of doctrine. He does combine all this work, I don't know how, with um, being deputy head of a Catholic junior and infant school. He had a go at running it as head teacher for a while, but then decided it didn't leave him enough time for his occupations, but um, made a good job of it nevertheless. He also finds time to go on lecture tours in India and America and all places west. So we're very pleased to have him to tell us and give us some understanding of the situation in catechetics here today. And not only here, Michael, I suppose. Michael Davis. <coughs> <coughs> uh, <coughs> thank you very much, John. Yes, I, <coughs> sorry if I sound a bit husky. I feel very much a grassroots teacher tonight as I was uh, refereeing a football match for <laughs> quarter past five. <laughs> and I got soaked to the skin going home on my bicycle and <laughs> forgot to change my shoes, which are wet. I've got very cold feet, <laughs> which might. Help, metaphorically. Yeah, yes, which might, well, perhaps literally and metaphorically, which will help to keep me brief, I hope. I just have, rather than talk about what I was going to talk, I would like to uh, continue on what David's been saying. I don't know if David realises it, but <laughs> he's been expounding the you know, precise opinions on the church and state and the Catholic Society of Archbishop Lefebvre. <laughs> who's, yes, who, as far as I know now, is the only bishop in the world who really believes in uh, building up the kingdom of Christ the King and having a Catholic state. And 
The criticism of Vatican II, which he's having the most bother with the Vatican, was in the uh, Declaration on Religious Liberty, where it said no distinction at all must be made in the treatment given to those propagating the truth and those propagating error, and they must be treated equally, which you couldn't get much farther from a Catholic worldview than that. But I think it's precisely because of what David was saying is that one comes unconsciously to absorb the opinions of the society in which one lives. If I wasn't talking about catechetics tonight, for instance, I might bring up the subject of democracy, and I'd be very surprised if anyone in this room doesn't think democracy is an absolutely marvellous thing and a basic human right, whereas that is actually something the popes have always condemned. And when Archbishop Lefebvre mentions that, nobody understands him. Yeah. But uh, the idea of having any sort of Catholic society now really has been abandoned, I think, by practically everyone but him. And uh, that is probably you know, one of the reasons for the deplorable state of Catholic religious education or catechetics, because one can't really separate any of these things. One can't separate the teaching of the church on a Catholic state, Catholic social teaching on trade unions, Catholic moral teaching, or, or the liturgy, or doctrinal teaching. Well, getting down to the subject of catechetics, I don't want to give you any detailed history of what's happened since Vatican II, as I've done this several times lately, and I recognise several people here who have hit on both times. Uh, anyone who wants a really detailed study of what has happened in this country since Vatican II, can get a copy of this talk, this Anthony Roper Memorial Lecture that I gave in 1984, which has got an almost month-by-month -month account of all the steps taken by organisations such as Profide, the interventions of the Vatican, uh, and the, the literature that has come out on, on, on the subject. Uh, I really have very little to add on that, so I wouldn't want to just go over the whole of that talk again. So I'll try and keep it very brief so that people here can have a chance to put their opinions. Very briefly, what was found was soon after Vatican II, teachers were asked to go on courses to learn new methods of teaching religious education. And most teachers I know went on them with very good faith. I did, and I know John did. But very soon it became apparent that what we were being asked to study were not new methods, but new content, in fact, a new religion. And the new religion we were being asked to teach was nothing to do with the teaching of the magisterium, but they were the speculations of theologians. Uh, I'm sure everybody here knows that by the magisterium, which of course comes from the Latin word magister, we mean the teaching authority of the church, which consists of the pope and the bishops. Now theologians do not form part of the magisterium though today they form what's often referred to as a parallel magisterium, which in fact carries far more authority with, with to the average Catholic student in a seminary or the average Catholic student in a training college than the actual teaching of the magisterium itself. The task of theologians really is to study the teaching of the magisterium and extend it and... Uh, engage on legitimate speculation. But very often, once you get into drawing conclusions from established premises, the conclusions you reach can be false. 
And there's always a danger for theologians that they will lapse into heresy. When they do, they're informed of this by the magisterium. And they either submit to the magisterium or they then become heretics. Uh, a heretic, by the way, it doesn't become so simply from teaching false doctrine. I'm sure that all of us here tonight, or most of us, including all the teachers, probably if we had to give a talk on the precise details of the Trinity and the Incarnation and the relations of the persons to each other, uh, would probably say something heretical. You only become a heretic when you're pertinacious in your error and when you're reprimanded by a legitimate authority and you refuse to change your position. Well, a genuine Catholic theologian, if he's reproved, he will change his position. But get someone like Hans Kung, who was reproved, and he refused to modify any of his views. And that, of course, is what happened at the Reformation and with all the famous heresies in history. Well, these heretical theological speculations first began to spread in seminaries, I'm afraid. Then they spread into the teacher training colleges, then down through the secondary schools, into the primary schools, right down to the very infant level. Well, you might ask, well, what possible heresy could one teach infants? Well, any of you who've had children who've been prepared for their first communion with the books of the obnoxious Christian Brusselmans, don't know if anyone here has ever heard of her, will know that you can teach heresy to infants. And this new catechesis, as it's called, is now firmly established, uh, th not just throughout this country, but throughout all the, all the countries in the West. Well, very soon some opposition to, to these ideas did arise. Uh, it was most strongly put forward by the Pro Fide movement, and they managed to get a public debate going. In those days, the Catholic press were somewhat more liberal in printing letters from people who disagreed with uh, popular ideas than they are now. And it's very hard now for anyone who wants to criticise the new catechetics, the new liturgy, the new morality, to get their letters published. And this opposition did evoke a very large response. I know I wrote some articles for the universe and I was actually invited out to a very nice dinner by the editor. I don't think I've ever had such a good dinner before. Uh, perhaps I'd better become a modernist. I might get <laughs> another one like that. But uh, and he, he said my articles had evoked the most favourable reaction they'd ever had. And then Canon Telford, whom a good number of you here will have heard of, who was the catechetical director in Southwark and vice-chairman eventually of the National Catechetical Commission. So he was the second most authoritative person on catechetics in this country. Well, he intervened in the debate. And uh, I think as always has happened, when, when, when there has been an open debate, the people from our point of view tend to win hands down. Because I think obviously we're upholding the magisterium, so, so we have an irrefutable case. But then... Uh, the, the bishops, I'm afraid, wanted the debate stopped because it became embarrassing to them. Because if you get a man in charge of the religious education in a diocese, take a particular example, there was Father Anthony Bullen in Liverpool. He had been appointed by the late Archbishop Beck. All his uh, syllabuses carried the imprimatur of Archbishop Beck. And Archbishop Beck would 
write approving forwards to things which uh, Father Bullen wrote. Sarge Bishop Beck's personal prestige and authority were inextricably bound up with the fact that Father Bullen was totally orthodox. And so any criticism of Father Bullen was seen by Archbishop Beck as an attack upon himself. And so throughout the country, the bishops tended to side with the catechetical directors whom they had appointed. And as John mentioned earlier, Corpus Christi College, where most of the current catechetical establishment were trained, was eventually closed down by the bishops. The, the, the opposition to it grew so great, which is not a good reason for closing it down, because the bishops knew very well what it was teaching. And it's, we've reached a very sad state of affairs where the bishops will only do what's right because of a public outcry. I think a more recent case uh, of that is uh, Cardinal Hume's sudden uh, enthusiasm for Mrs. Gillick. Yes. Uh, which she, uh, I think she got no help at all from anyone in the Catholic hierarchy throughout her campaign. But when it became evident that uh, she was very popular, not, not just among ordinary Catholics, but, but with a large section of the population of this country, uh, she suddenly started getting support from Catholic bishops. But anyway, be that as it may, Corpus Christi was eventually closed down. But by then, uh, all its graduates had, had obtained very authoritative positions throughout the country. And so it was like Che Guevara, who died in South America, but he still lives, as we're informed. And, and Corpus Christi uh, College still lives on in the persons of its graduates. There is a Corpus Christi Society. They meet every year. And... Uh, you see them writing in, in, in many Catholic publications. Uh, even the priests who've been laicized uh, are, write regular articles in religious education journals for Catholic schools. Now, eventually, as John mentioned, the Vatican Board had a very good document, the Catechetical Directory, and... Uh, Unfortunately, it was very largely ignored in this country, but what it did give was a list of doctrines that children should be taught, and Cardinal Wright said at the time that parents could use this as a checklist on what they were being taught in Catholic schools. And one very practical step Profide did do was we produced a document analysing current syllabuses and textbooks on the basis of what the catechetical directory said Catholic children should be learning. In some of them... I'll just see how many points. Yes, there were 31 points, 31 doctrines, starting, uh, including ones like original sin, the infallibility of the Pope, that the Mass is a sacrifice. There are 31 of these. In some of these courses, courses not one of these doctrines was included. And so the children weren't learning one basic truth of the faith uh, throughout their Catholic education. And this situation, I'm, I'm afraid it's, it's just continued to deteriorate. Uh, Rome, as John said, does put out very good documents, but it is unfortunate that Rome is rather weak on seeing that they're implemented. It's rather like you sometimes see in schools where you get ineffective teachers who say the children are running about the corridors, and say, stop running, stop running, and the children go on running, and the teachers just let them carry on doing it. Uh, they might even go as far as putting a notice up, saying no child will run in the school. Uh, but if nothing is done to implement it, uh, then uh, 
this situation isn't likely to change. And it's now very, very hard to change the situation in this country to any appreciable extent because these people who I will call modernists, they control all the official structures. They control the training colleges, the Episcopal commissions, the ecumenical commissions, the liturgical commissions. And when you get uh, very firmly uh, established bureaucracy in, in, in a political party, in a state or in a religious group, it's very, very hard uh, for people without adequate resources to dislodge it, which is why a dictatorship uh, can political dictatorship can remain in power almost indefinitely with quite small armed forces. And the only way one could improve the situation now would be if, if by some miracle the bishops were suddenly determined to, with, to restore the orthodox teaching of the magisterium and they made a practically clean sweep of all their institutions. Now this, I'm afraid, is very, very unlikely because I'm afraid it seems that since Bishop Gordon Wheeler retired, that all our bishops now endorse the, these modernist or semi-modernist views. This was made very clear by a document, it's not strictly connected with catechetics, but as I said, you can't split all these things up. The Archic, uh, if you know the Archic, is the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, and they produced a series of documents purporting to prove that Catholics and Protestants have the same beliefs on, on the priesthood and on the Eucharist, and eventually they brought one out on authority. And our, the final report contained a statement that's been condemned repeatedly as totally heretical by Pope after Pope after Pope, saying that, which says that uh, there is an entity called the Christian Church, which is made up of all the different churches, Anglicans, Orthodox, <coughs> Methodists, and the Catholic Church. And we're just part of this greater Christian Church. And we're all moving towards unity. Well, with the exception of one bishop, well, who obviously was Bishop Gordon Wheeler, who's now retired, every bishop in this country voted in favour of that document. So... Probably in mind, I'd say 90% of them hadn't read it. And that again is an unfortunate uh, aspect of any organisation that has a bureaucracy, is that people in an executive position very often don't read the things which, which are issued in their name. But that doesn't alter the fact that all the bishops in our country are now committed to a statement which is totally heretical. Mm. So if people really don't have the faith or are not prepared to uphold the faith, but well, one can't really expect them to make a clean sweep of the institutions that are undermining it. And this is a book I've quoted from several times in uh, recent talks to show you how, how, just how bad things have got. It's called Our Faith Story. And uh, he, he mentions in it, well, on, on page 15, he, he mentions this fact that... Uh, his task, that is the task of a catechist, is not to give God to anybody, but to help people discover God within themselves as the life-giving and, life and love-giving source of their existence. Now that abandons the traditional idea of a Catholic religious teacher who passes on the message given to us by Christ. 
And throughout this book, we have the modernist idea that God is imminent, God is within ourselves, and that uh, really any impulse, any idea we get is an expression of God. So we have to respect and tolerate everything <coughs> anyone does uh, as uh, really an, a manifestation of God. And he also brings in a, an, another modernist idea, which is uh, that uh, revelation really is continuing all the time and, and comes from the experiences of the people. He says we used to believe uh, in authority, which... Uh, included the idea of the Pope, the bishops and priests having a very special relationship to God, which resulted in their having a specialised knowledge and endowed them with power and authority over the members of the church who were their subjects. The role of the subject was to obey, and in obeying they submitted to the will of God. This kind of authority puts emphasis on order and on moulding the subjects to fit into a well-tried way of life which had been led by generation after generation, and which enshrine God's eternal truths. Well, that presumes exactly what every one of us thinks. But he says, now there's another way. Today there is another way of looking at authority, which takes into account not only the presence of God's Spirit in those who have authority, Pope, bishops, and priests, but also in the subjects. In this understanding, the bishop, for example, sees himself as discovering the will of God with his subjects. Bishop and subjects listen to each other and pray together as a kind of, as a way of finding the way forward together. And he adds a little qualification. He doesn't, says he doesn't want to tell us that this approach to authority is already firmly established in the truth. Uh, but it's emerging as a result of thinking about the church stimulated by the Vatican Council. Um, but as you can see, this is totally opposed to the command given by our Lord to his apostles, which wasn't to go out and uh, dialogue with the people and find the way forward together. It was to go out and preach, just to teach the things that he taught them. And those who accepted them and believed them accepted him. And those who rejected them rejected him and would therefore be condemned. But this book, Our Faith Story, apparently is to be the basis of all religious teaching in, in our Catholic schools today. And the strangest, uh, well, there's something strange on practically every page. But his thesis is that you shouldn't teach religion in Catholic schools today in the classroom uh, because lots of children, children are lapsed. So if you teach something as true, for instance, if you teach the real presence as a truth, that is proselytism. You're trying to, because you're an authority figure, you're putting forward your views as, as authoritative truth to people who really can't fairly be expected to accept them. And uh, he, he says, therefore, I believe catechesis may well not be appropriate to a classroom setting. But uh, <coughs> you can have it in informal groups in the school where children freely choose to attend. Uh, he says, for example, catechesis may happen in a justice and peace group. Uh, uh, so, really, this is the book on which religious education in Catholic schools is to be based, and its conclusion is one shouldn't have any anymore, uh, which in view of the ideas he has uh, appear to be all modernists is perhaps a good thing. 
Now, what's the final result of this? What do the effects on the children? Now, I was very, very interested in my own deanery. They, they, they have had a, an inquiry into the standard of religious knowledge among Catholic children. Uh, they had uh, qu quite a high sample, uh, something like 900, I think, they sampled something like 900 children. And uh, their conclusions are as follows, that uh, of, of the children, only 6% have got an adequate grasp of their faith, really know anything about their faith at all. Uh, 94% of the rest don't, and it says they seem poised to lapse from the faith on leaving school if they have not done so already. Well, that's an, these are children in Catholic schools. Only 6% have any grasp of their faith at all. 94% are set to lapse the moment they leave school if they haven't done so already. They note also that practice is decreasing as the children grow older, but knowledge increases little, if at all. And uh, this again is borne out uh, by the statistics. If one looks into the statistics of religious practice in this country today, which I've done, some of you might have seen some I've published in Christian Order, which didn't seem to be taken into account in any of the Catholic press before the Synod or into the uh, our bishop's submission for the Synod, but... The position is absolutely appalling. Uh, for a few years after Vatican II, the church went into a state of stagnation. Now it's in a state of galloping decline. Uh, you see, baptisms, they rose by 92% from 1944 to 1964. They've declined by 48%. In 1964, we had 137,000 baptisms. In 1984, there were only 71,000. That means every year that passes, we're losing the Catholic populations. They have a city the size of Birmingham. They're just vanishing. They won't be there. Uh, first, first communions since 1964, they've declined by 40%. The rate they're declining now, there will not be any first communions in 16 years' time. Uh, and uh, confirmations, they've gone down by nearly 50%. And what, what is uh, very, very significant is that in 1964, looking back at the children 10 years before who were baptised, 93% of them were confirmed. Well, that indicates a very, very high level of practice, that 93% of the children baptised were confirmed. The position in 1984 is that only 50% of the children baptised in the relevant year, that would be 12 years before they put the age up, uh, were confirmed, which means 50% of our children have lapsed really and vanished from practice by the age of 12. Now, when you think of these who are being baptised, the baptism rate has gone down by 50%, and of the those who remain, 50% have lapsed by the age of 12. And those who are in Catholic schools, as this report says, 94% of them are going to lapse when they leave schools. The situation is totally catastrophic. And one would imagine that our, our, our bishops would be put this as their very top priority. But I'm afraid you'll, you'll find they're far more interested in what's happening in South Africa 
publish something which they cannot understand and about which they can do nothing whatsoever, or about what's happening in Nicaragua, than they are about this. And the only, the only remark I'll make on closing, the only optimistic uh, aspect I can see is that ordinary Catholics now are actually doing something about it themselves. And you have uh, organizations like Profide, which, which are endeavoring to do the job which the bishop should be doing. And you have magazines like Christian Order and Approaches and Faith, which are attempting to uphold uh, orthodoxy. And you also have now a very, very good bookshop, the Holy Cross Catholic Bookshop, where you can get a series of books which, which have everything in them that our Catholic children need to learn. And also Profide has had books published. Uh, John perhaps might tell you in a moment about the astonishing success of this. Father Drinkwater's abbreviated catechism, which he's had published. I think you've sold tens of thousands. Yes, 40,000 have. 40,000 have been sold. Here's the very final remark I would make. I, I wouldn't like to say that before Vatican II, we had a golden age of catechetics. Religion probably was taught rather badly in most Catholic schools. And probably wasn't, well, almost certainly wasn't given the priority it should have been. And catechists like Canon Drinkwater were endeavouring to have religion taught in, in a more effective manner. But what they wanted was the traditional religion taught in a more effective manner. And he didn't want the catechism, the catechism questions abolished, but he wanted them set within a context of lessons which would make their meaning clear, and then the children were meant to memorise them. And he did write this abbreviated catechism, which uh, Profide managed to get reprinted and has sold 40,000 copies. And I know that the... Holy Cross Bookshop is importing very good books uh, in from the United States where the Daughters of St. Paul seem to be reversing the new trend in catechetics and many parents are buying them to instruct their own children and there have been cases now of several entire schools throwing out their uh, post modern post-Vatican II courses and going back to these traditional post-Vatican II courses. But I'm afraid as far as I can see any improvement will only be like that with limited initiatives either by individual families or individual schools where you have a headmaster like John. And the general situation for Catholic religious teaching in this country is that it's going to go on getting worse and worse and worse and the decline in Catholic practice is going to continue uh, getting worse and worse and worse. So I fear by the turn of the century there's only going to be a vestigial Catholic presence in this country and the extent to what to which those people really are Catholic and that they believe what the church teaches and live as the church teaches will be even more minimal so on those gloomy conclusions possibly prompted by my cold feet <laughs> I'll conclude thank you Thank you to um, Michael. I was very, very interested in what Michael had to say, but I thought that one of the most, certainly a very important thing which he said, he said at the beginning, and it's this question of democracy. And I've been thinking about this for years now, and I 
think it was um, David who really gave me the clue in one of his keys of Peter years ago, and I've thought about it so much since. And I cannot see um, how this wonderful thing that everybody thinks is marvellous is marvellous. I think it's one of the most terrible things that's ever happened in, to the world because it's got no, no Catholic framework. If it was in a Catholic framework, I could see there might be something in it. But as it's got no framework at all and it's like a plant where the cells have gone wrong and it goes any way it likes, I think it's the most devilish thing. But the whole, wor uh, the whole Western world seems to think that it's taken the place of truth. Instead of talking about truth, as our Lord did, um, they talk about democracy, as though democracy were truth. But the other day, for the first time, I think, in my life, I picked up Plato's Republic. I was just in the library, wandering around, and I saw Plato's Republic. I don't know if many people know it. I expect all the teachers know it, or most of them. Anyway, in the first pages... Um, this is a conversation between these Greek, um, I suppose you call them, intellectuals. And it comes about that they have four or five um, ideas or statements of how a society should be run. And they, they're put down in order. And the fifth, I think it was, um, is it Cicero who was speaking? I think it is. is no, yeah, no, Plato wrote the book. But I think in this, is it Cicero? I don't know. Is it Cicero, the word? Oh, anyway, whoever it was. Um, he gives the meaning of these various these ideas, these statements. And the fifth one is democracy. And, and this is 2,450 years ago, I think, before Christ. And they come to the conclusion, or he came to the conclusion, that democracy was ruled by the mob. And I thought how very true it still is today. In fact, it's probably a jolly sight worse today. And that, that's is half the 95% of the troubles in the world. And if I might just conclude by saying, um, I recently was very involved in this Sunday trading business. So trying to do my public duty... I wrote to the minister concerned, I forget what his name was now, but there's a minister concerned with all this. Is it the Home Office or something, minister? Can anybody remind me who it is you have to write to on this? Anyway, I wrote to him, and I was pointing out that uh, about the fact that they're looking at, all the people who are concerned, they're looking at it very much on the surface, but Mary Whitehouse has informed me by reading part of one of her books that the um, it was the um, the humanists who started this thing uh, about trying to wipe out one of the marks of Christianity, which was to be wiped out. It was um, um, the root of this uh, question of Sunday trading, and it's got really. Very, very little to do with whether you can sell tripe or chips on a Sunday. This is what they're putting forward, but it's got nothing to do with that, really. Anyway, I wrote to him, and I pointed out to the minister, whose name I forget, that um, I don't think the word democracy comes into the Bible at all. I said, there's plenty about truth and about keeping the laws of God, but not one word about democracy. I, I got a reply the other day. But it had nothing to do with what I said in my letter. I got a sort of fixed reply. 
And just before I conclude, David pointed out to me, he may have forgotten, that it would seem, judging by the Old Testament, and I don't think it's anywhere um, abrogated in the New, that the rule which God would want, we can conclude, at least from Scripture, is true kingship. Not the sort of thing we've got here, um, this tribe where the Queen can't do anything because of Parliament, but where you've got the Catholic thing we've been talking about, where you have Catholic, truly Catholic kings ruling, and if they're not ruling according to Catholicism, then that is where the people must revolt until they've got a Catholic king like a, like a St. Edward the Confessor, and I think this is something that we need to think about. Thank you. Yes, I have three uh, points to make, mainly on, on Michael Davis' talk. The first one concerns the Vatican Declaration on Religious Liberty, which you mentioned at the beginning. Um, I don't, in fact, ag agree that it opposes a Catholic worldview, because I don't think it changed the Church's teaching, which has been constant, that error has no rights. All it said was that people had the freedom to seek the truth, which is very different from uh, the way some people have probably interpreted it, uh, that the f people have the freedom to spread error, which the Church has never said. Secondly, on, on the bishops, I accept many of the criticisms you make, but I think it's very easy to criticise, and I recall a comment which Malcolm Muggeridge uh, once made was that a point he, which was an obstacle to him joining the Catholic Church for many years, that he saw that the actual leaders of the Catholic Church were not, in his view, following Catholic principles. And then he spoke to Mother Teresa who said to him, well, Jesus Christ had 12 disciples, one of whom betrayed him and the other 11 ran away. And I think it's rather similar with, with, with the bishops that um, they, they are weak, they are sort of human like us, and we have to show them understanding and help them by standing up. Because if more Catholics were standing up, then surely they'd find it easier to take a courageous stand. And finally, on the question of, um, of catechisms, I think that, that one of the problems in Catholic schools is that parents have ceased in, in, in all matters of education in many cases, not only in religious education, to have responsibility for teaching that, their children and that they have uh, transferred this responsibility to the state. And I think the sooner parents reassert their rights, uh, the more easily this problem will be resolved. Uh, and as someone, to, to end on an optimistic note, as someone who, who does teach catechism on a voluntary basis myself, I'm pleased to find that there are some good catechisms about, in particular one called The Teaching of Christ, uh, which is quite a long catechism, which people like John Finnis have been involved with, and which I find absolutely superb. Thank you. I don't want to divert the attention of the meeting to a discussion on religious liberty. Uh, you're quite right. The Vatican II doesn't teach that people have the right to embrace error, but what it teaches, which is different from before, you see, 
the church I was taught before that in a Catholic state, although no coercion must be forced upon anyone to believe the truth, the authorities in the state had a right to prevent them from spreading their errors in the public forum. Well, they didn't, they didn't have an, necessarily a duty to do it because they said often uh, doing this, uh, preventing the spread of errors, uh, could do more harm than tolerating them. So you get a c c case like the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in France and the expulsion of the Protestants, which did far more harm to France than it would have done if they'd allowed them to remain. So the situation was, in a, a country like Spain, uh, Protestants could have their churches, but they couldn't take part in broadcasts or television or have outdoor public processions. They could have their own schools, but you wouldn't be allowed in Spain to publish a book attacking transubstantiation or the Assumption or the Immaculate uh, Conception. So they could be prevented uh, from spreading their errors in public. But what the Re Declaration on Religious Liberty says is that, th th that this can no longer be done. And even if any particular religion is given uh, a special position in the state, the same rights have to be accorded to all the other religions, which in practice means that no, no, no distinction is made between uh, tr truth and error. And... Uh, this, of course, has resulted in the constitutions in countries like Spain and in Malta, where I was in the army, have now been amended to conform uh, with the teaching of the Church on Religious Liberty, because General Franco was such a devout Catholic, devout Catholic that he changed his constitution to conform with this. Uh, and finally now, you see, Spain is, is becoming one of the most degenerate countries in Europe, uh, which, which, is, which is very sad. As regards to the bishops, I think we shouldn't be too understanding to the bishops because bishops do have, as you see in the documents of Vatican II, a special responsibility to uphold the faith for uh, far more than in any layman. And I, see, I'd put it round, the, you, you said if more of us would stand up for orthodoxy, it would encourage the bishops to be more orthodox. But I think it's the other way round. And I think if the bishops hadn't been so weak in the beginning, uh, the majority of lay people wouldn't be unorthodox now. And I know all the surveys which have been done in the United States now find that on questions of morality, uh, there's no difference at all between Catholics and, and Protestants. So a Catholic, a practicing Catholic now, is a really a Protestant who goes to Mass on Sunday. And, and it isn't affecting the way they live at all. And that is something that would be very, very hard to change. I, I can't think of any case in history where on a very large scale, a whole country, people have lapsed from stricter standards to easier standards, and they've ever been brought back again. Uh, it, so in, in, is in, in, Yes, could, could you explain that? I'd be interested. It was a Catholic country, yes. totally lapsed, and thanks to the Legion of Mary, it was totally rewon for Christ until more recent troubles. That's why I didn't know that. It's, uh, you've learned something. Yes. <laughs> could um, David come in on that? Well,
Two very, very quick points on what Bernard Taylor has said from the floor. Um, one of them... Oh, sorry, I thought it was still... Um, don't understand, don't understand these devilish things. Um, one of them is, I think, a matter of fact. The other, I suppose, is an opinion. Um, the matter of fact, I would agree that, judging by history, most large Catholic states, most Catholic states of any size or population do have popular executive monarchies. Um, but I think one must point out as a fact, the Church teaches no such thing. The Church teaches that any form which fulfills the functions of yeah, just I government I, I, uh, I know, can, in theory, do so, can in theory do so. <laughs> um, secondly, I don't honestly think that the problem is in the least that democracy is mob rule. Mob rule can't happen. Well, I was telling you what... what Plato's book says. May I just ask you for the last time, please? We are trying to take this. And if we have all this toing and froing without the microphone, it moves. We like to reach a far wider audience. So please have a little discipline and a little less liberty, religious or other. Anyway, I think that's going away from education. Yes, Can we have yes. Mrs. Jamlevich? Can we have a question on education or, or something on education? Mrs. Maranti, you come in on education. May I uh, remind you um, that Father Flanagan was the one who founded this proof, he did, and his anniversary of his death is next Thursday, the Holy Thursday, because we really owe a lot to him, and so we could pray for him and perhaps ask his intercession. Now, all these talks have been heard so many times since his time, in fact. All that Michael Davis has been saying, it's certainly got worse. But what we need to do is to support any organization that is trying to um, reverse the trend. Now, there is one you may not have heard of, and that is the Knights of Saint, uh, Lady of St. Benedict, which was founded in France. They're now having a, a rally in, um, what's it called, um, Glastonbury, which goes right back to the roots of the faith in this country. And uh, it's a thing that could be supported because their aim is to re-Christianize Europe. It's not only this country. It started in France. And, of course, there's St. Benedict and St. Methodius and Cyril and St. Methodius of the eastern part of uh, Europe, uh, which the Pope is also backing this idea of re-Christianizing Europe, evangelizing Europe. So however small these groups are, everything starts small by one person very often. We need to look for these groups to um, revitalize the faith, I think. And uh, thank you, John, for um, confirming that the textbooks are all ape-men orientated, which, of course, is a basic philosophy, which is a creed of the communists and the humanists, therefore not of our allies, whereas the Protestants are very much creationist, um, not the liberal group, but the, the um, more conservative group of Catholics uphold creation very much. And th these homilies of the Holy Father, which are published in the Osservatore Romano, on creation, it's a series which is still going on, um, how can we get them publicized? Frank Swarbrick will probably f publish them, but uh, there's no way of, um, of getting them through the Catholic press because they won't uh, publish any of the homilies. 
this is really where the, the cause of the rot is because they're not getting the teaching of the church. Well, I'd like to say, with regard to the question of the Declaration on Religious Liberty, and this is not a drift from the subject of education, because I think it's very pertinent to it, um, although the document does start off by uh, more or less paying lip service to the idea that, uh, uh, irrespective of anything else in the document, uh, the church isn't altering its teaching that individuals are bound to seek and embrace the truth. Uh, nevertheless, in its practical consequences, and in the remainder of the document, it, it's poles apart from, for instance, um, the statements of uh, Leo the uh, Thirteenth in, uh, in, I think, uh, Libertas, that uh, uh, on no account should the state be godless or what comes to the same thing treat all religions as being on exactly the same level so if uh, the practical consequence of uh, the declaration of unreligious liberty is uh, an embracing by the church of the concept of pluralism and you, you get the result of that in such things as uh, uh, the bishops in uh, error giving the green light to a bill to legalise contraception in a country which is 95% Catholic and this uh, uh, it was explicitly said that uh, it was more or less following the lines of the Declaration on Religious Liberty and the respect for pluralism and so on and also the, the lamentable uh, concordat recently signed between Italy and the Vatican which simply dethrones Christ and the church from any position of privilege in the uh, Italian state and recognises uh, the secular nature of Italian society from now on similarly with the Spanish Concordat now if you've got um, a view of the church as simply one among equals in a pluralistic society, that is going to be the view that is taught in the schools, preparing the children to take their place in such a pluralistic society. And if that is done, what hope have we ever of re-establishing the kingship of Christ? Who's next? I'm wondering, uh, it seems to me that that principle has been put into practice in the case of Charles Curran, who for two, 20 years has been teaching heresy and still allowed. He's not excommunicated. Why do they not excommunicate now? For instance, when Hans Kung came to London some years ago, he got up in the pulpit at St Paul's and he said... Oh, you may have read recently that I'm uh, no longer uh, allowed to be a Catholic theologian, but I'm still a Catholic priest, still free to preach. Now, is that the right thing for the church to do? It's allowing them to go around teaching error. 
Is that what our bishops should allow? Just uh, a little comment on Charles Curran, that uh, they did try, about ten years ago, they did try to get rid of him, and they had a strike of uh, theology teachers, and the bishops backed down in the face of the strike. And the Cardinal Ratzinger is now making some, I think, very courageous moves to try and have Charles Curran removed. Well, but he's seen in the Catholic press this week that he's been uh, already banned from being a Catholic theologian. But is that enough? He should be declared no longer a Catholic priest if he denies all Catholic teaching. It's, no, but he's still, uh, he's still teaching in the Catholic University. You see, oh, well, the, the Catholic Herald said he's been banned from teaching. If he has, well, I haven't seen this week. If he has, that's yes. very good news. Yes. yes. We'll see if... Yes. The tablet didn't yes. say that. The tablet says something quite different. But then you <laughs> see, uh, after Hans Kung was banned from teaching, he was invited to America and gave a, a, a lecture series. And there's a far more dangerous man than Charles Curran, a Father McBrien, who's written a huge two-volume work called Catholicism, which is established in a kind of place of honour over in the Catholic Library in Francis Street near here. Uh, and uh, he introduced Hans Kung at one of his lectures just about a year after he, the Pope had said he's no longer a Catholic theologian. He said, I wish to introduce you to Father Hans Kung, a great Catholic theologian. And, of course, with tremendous, uh, tremendous applause. And even in this country have people who... John, people like John and myself who have been involved in this a long time will remember. There was a Father Hubert Richards, who Cardinal Heenan admitted he was no longer Catholic because he didn't believe in the Trinity of the Incarnation. Well, he, he goes around and gives lectures. He, he was giving lectures under Bishop Constance's auspices. Uh, he wrote a book, one book on Christmas and one book on Easter, which virtually abolished <coughs> Christmas and Easter. And he gave talks to teachers at the former Maria... A Sumter training college on Christmas and Easter. And there's a dreadful magazine, it's called the RE View, isn't it? Uh, one now for teachers. And uh, he writes in that, just to other former married priests who are at Corpus Christi. So the fact now that, he, that if they are proved to be heretical or if they are banned, you see, if we have this parallel magisterium which I mentioned. This parallel magisterium hasn't banned them, and so they still have far more access, say, to Catholic teachers than someone like Cardinal Ratzinger would. There's no way Cardinal Ratzinger's views are going to permeate through to the ordinary Catholic teacher. And it is very, very hard, as I said, once you have people in, all this, in control of all the structures, it's very hard to dislodge them. You see that in every ordinary aspect of uh, education as well. But there's some terrible ideas going on in education today. It's in the view of morals that in uh, schools today...